Matt Williams. Welcome to Time Team. I have it here that you did 123 episodes of Time Team, and that's got to be a long service. Did you realise you'd done so many? I, I knew, I was thinking it must be over 100, but 123 is way more than I imagined. It's really difficult to remember more than, I don't know, 10 or 20 at a time. And if I really think back, I can remember all these different experiences. But 123, that blew my mind when you said that. And just explain to people, uh, who are you and what did you do on Time Team? and When did you start and, and, and that sort of thing? Well, I started on Time Team about halfway through its run. So um, I think it was Series 10 or 11. Uh, and I was essentially a trench supervisor, or I saw myself as a trench supervisor. We would open up trenches on day one. I was given one to open up to find out what was inside it. And then usually we had some guys working with us and we just had to keep going until stuff started to emerge, really. And when it did, that's when things start to get exciting. We cleaned it up. We got the other archaeologists in. We got the photographs in. And then we would call over. Hang on, let me think there for a minute. Once things started to emerge, we would call over some of the specialists or Tony, depending on what was going on. Whatever they were doing, we just gave them a shout, really. Um, and we've got everything presentable and they would ask us what we'd found. And then the specialists would really, I suppose, take over from there and try and interpret it because they could link it up with what was happening in the other trenches as well. OK. And best thing you can remember finding on Time Team, the most exciting day in a trench? Easy. I know this one because people have asked me this loads of times over the last, you know, 15 years or so. It was the inscribed or engraved stone on the Isle of Man. Absolutely. And at first, I think uh, we sent it off to be translated, didn't we? And it was something about boats coming over or uh, a group of people coming over to the island. I'm not quite sure how accurate that was, but it was... 20, really... 20 Vikings cornered here was the version I think okay. Helen got. Incredible, that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, as I think Helen said at the time, Matt, you will never, ever find a more important artefact in your life. And she's right. 20 years later, I haven't. And I love the fact that Helen told me, uh, confessed to the fact that when she finally talked to the camera about it, she actually had it upside down. <laughs> so quite what anybody made of Ogham or Futhark upside down, I don't know. And we also find the hair, and that was with Jackie McKinley, wasn't it, on that? Video? Yeah. Mm -hmm. There were some amazing graves there, weren't there? They were, I think they were stone-lined kists, and the preservation of them was absolutely amazing. And you, are, your skills, you think of yourself, you talk about yourself as a supervisor, but fundamentally we'd often have you fairly against the, 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 the face of the archaeology digging. And that was great for me because I could always come to you and say, what's really going on? What have you really got? How much did it feel at times like hard work? I mean, it struck me physically. There were times when you were matticking, scraping, digging. It's, a, it, it's physically, it's quite tough labour, isn't it? It really was a lot of the time, especially at the beginning when you didn't really know what to be concentrating on or where you should focus your your manpower, really. And they just felt like there was a lot of stuff to move before started the stuff started coming together. There's two types of work, really, and you kind of alluded to both of them there. There's the mental challenge as well. What's important? What shall I concentrate on? Now, I'm really knackered. I've got two hours left. 
what do I need to do before Tim comes over and starts asking me what I've found? And then once you've decided that, it is all hands to deck and you've got to shift as much as you can and know when to be careful, but also to know when you can just swing that mattock as hard as you can. I always remember one time when uh, I think we slightly Im improved the morale of the diggers and you in particular, when we were on a, a navvy site and we decided to find out what actually was the consequences of giving you a navvy diet, which was like a pint of beer every hour or something crazy. Yeah, it was there was a there was a couple of pints in the morning for breakfast. I think I think watered down to make it because they, they didn't drink drink particularly strong beer. But even at nine o'clock in the morning, any beer really <laughs> you can feel it. Yeah, that was uh, that was that. I think that did help me work. Uh, it certainly kept you know helped the time pass till about three in the afternoon, and then I just started to feel a bit tired to be honest. And by five o'clock, I was ready ready for a break and unlike everyone else at that point I wasn't you know happy to go to the pub in the hotel afterwards in fact, I don't think I went to the hotel afterwards actually something like that I can't remember what I did in the evening I think it was more beer and more and more navvy food wasn't it yeah it was the tw whole 24 hours gosh yeah that was an, ex an interesting and pretty good experience though I'm not quite sure I'd really be des desperate to do that again quickly for experimental reasons, I always wondered about the possibility of, you know, cheering up the whole digging crew by getting everybody, you know, slightly <laughs> inebriated on beer. Uh, um, but you were right. There was a, the con it, it sort of went with a swing in the morning. And mm. then as the day went on, there was increasing sort of element of grumpiness and not needing to lie down a bit. Came yeah, in. yeah. <laughs> and I just started again the next morning. I think it was just for the half day. And and I thought, gosh, you know, a day and a half of this. Really, they must have been absolutely exhausted the whole time, these navvies. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a bit like the whole three-day experience, really. I mean, not that everyone was drinking those whole three days, but you start off with all this energy, but it's so intense for those three days, isn't it? By the end of day three, everyone's a bit like, gosh, you know, I'm pretty much run out of batteries here. I don't know how much longer I can go for. And then, of course, you know, I don't know whether you were part of the, were you part of the backfill team that Kerry ought to used to organise? Uh, no, only for a year. I think I did that for the first for the first year I was there, but not, not, not after that. No, I was out there after the end of day three. Yeah, I like the idea that, um, you know, I, when I imagine you, I kind of imagine you occasionally being alongside Phil or Jackie McKinley or you know, Francis Pryor or one of our, you know, really some of, the, they're like really great archaeologists in their own right. Do you think your skills improve? What, what being a digger on time team, did it add, did it add anything to your skills? Well, certainly. I mean, again, there's, there's two things that come to mind really. And the first one is definitely working with people like Phil Harding. There is no field archaeologist in the world like Phil. You can look at a trench and he can see everything immediately. And one of my happiest memories, what I used to love doing on Time Team, is going out. When we all got to site in the morning, about kind of quarter past eight, people would be milling around, having a cup of coffee or whatever. And Phil would always wander out and stand in the mist by a trench or something. You could see him looking at it. If I had the guts, I'd always kind of wander up to him and just stand next to him for a bit and say, so, Phil, what do you reckon's going on here? And if he was in a good mood, we'd have a bit of a chat. And it was brilliant to absorb all that stuff of him and see what he was doing. And I genuinely learned a huge amount from him. I really, really appreciate that. And, of course, the same goes for Francis Pryor. 
Um, any kind of finds chat with, with Helen Geek was, was incredible, any bits and pieces. And I all these things I absorbed all the time, things that I would never have got the chance to do on a normal site, which, which, which brings me to the next point as well. Time Team did amazing sites. I spent a lot of time in commercial archaeology digging up ditches, pits, not particularly exciting sites, but they were focused on where developments would go or roads are being built. Time Team actually focused on interesting and exciting sites, sites that a lot of archaeologists wouldn't really get the chance to dig a lot of the time. And I think that that aspect of, of um, you know, digging alongside people, I always remember um, those moments when we'd have Jackie McKinley doing a skeleton. Can you remember your first skeleton or any skeletons you dug on Time Team? How did you feel when you were doing a skeleton dig? Um, I remember digging the skeletons at, was it Grassholme? The um, early church, I think it was, uh, next to the sea. Um, yeah, that was very, very dramatic. But before I joined Time Team, I'd spent a lot of time excavating skeletons on various sites. I spent a year excavating skeletons at Spitalfields, which is a medieval cemetery in East London. So I had kind of developed a system um, and I was quite used to excavating um, bones at that point and the practicalities of doing it, uh, how to treat them, how to preserve them. Uh, and, you know, we'd learned about what happened to them afterwards, where they were stored and usually reinterred, that kind of thing. It seems that that, that people remember those sort of skeletal. Did you do Westminster, Matt? I did yes but i didn't do one of the skeletons i can remember kind of um i can't, remember what, I can't actually i can remember doing kind of uh was it a, a, like a, a cellar thing or something next to the thing but to be honest I, yeah, I can remember walking around the front and watching jackie because she had those incredible uh, were they anglo-saxon skeletons around the front yeah brilliant i was a bit jealous at that point i think now you've You've got a company yourself. What is it you, you're doing now? Well, I've got kind of two jobs at the moment. Uh, half my time I work as an archaeologist for the RSPB, so I cover England and Wales for them. They uh, manage a lot of land, and that land has got quite a few scheduled monuments on it and a lot of uh, heritage assets and archaeological features. And I just make sure they're all well looked after and not damaged in any way and that, you know, we can carry on. We can carry, we can integrate them into the bird reserves well, really, and make sure that they're managed, managed OK. I also uh, have a partnership and uh, where I cover all range of archaeological work. I, I do field work occasionally, I do assessment reports for sites. I've done assessments for AONBs and local authorities, that kind of thing. A bit more maybe planning uh, involved, a bit more kind of... Uh, planning system and that kind of thing and we've talked about this before but i think there's a a general move to um get more if you like integration around a site i mean we we talk with Stuart about the wider landscape but also um i can think of many times when we were doing a site around a particular um uh, natural history element, uh, an environmental element, like for instance, newts came mm. up on one site. Yeah. So we had newt fencing and all sorts mm. of things and birds. Where, how, what do you have to do to kind of balance the 
RSPB element with the archaeological element. Are there some particular sites where this was easier or more difficult? It's, it's usually um, that we usually have quite similar aims, ecology, nature and heritage. Um, from a very practical point of view, uh, roots, roots and vegetation or you know, trees and saplings are not very good you know, growing on top of burial mounds. But then no, a lot of RSPB reserves don't want that anyway. So everybody wants to keep the vegetation down. Um, RSP reserves don't want foxes and badgers getting in and burrowing. So a lot of our aims are kind of the same, really. Uh, there can be conflicts um, occasionally. I'm trying to think of some things like fences going in the wrong place and that kind of thing. Um, one thing that we both have to be very careful of and balance as well is visitors course visitors are really important to RSP reserves and all the um and RSPB members are very important but you've just got to make sure they we have to be very careful as to where they go um you know disturbing wildlife and also uh, uh forming paths and stuff across sensitive sites uh, across barrows and that kind of thing so yeah Can you remember is there one really. particular is there one particular species of bird or a moment when you'd been able to um, uh, work a way of putting various bodies together on a site and it had meant that there were particular birds that were free to fly. Was there a moment you can remember when a particular bird or a particular set of birds, you saw them for the first time and felt, well, you know, I was a, a part of that? I can remember um, when I first joined the RSPB, uh, one of my jobs was to go around and assess all the scheduled monuments that hadn't been looked at for a couple of years. And some of them were hidden away. And we went to a beautiful site, Pam Wall, uh, down in the southwest. Um, and the uh, warden there said, Matt, have, you ever, have you ever seen a bitten or heard a bitten? And I was like, no, very rare. My dad's always wanted to see one. Any chance I can hear one before he does? And he said, yeah, they're all over the place at the moment. So we went out and we, ha we had to look at a, uh, a duck decoy site, ironically, <laughs> which is a site designed for attracting and then shooting birds. So we, we've, we, he showed me that. Um, we've been trapping around for about an hour. And, he, and I said, where's there are these bitten's then? And he said, Oh, sorry, they're usually around by now. You know, we'll find one. So we checked out the scheduled monument, came back again. An hour and a half, almost back at the car park. And I said, well, thanks very much. Nothing at all. And he said, well, I'm sorry about that. Maybe come tomorrow. And as soon as he said that, this weird noise just came right next to us, this low booming. And it sounds like nothing I've ever heard of before, like an industrial, some strange industrial noise. And there it was, it was total silence. It kept coming across. And then another one started. And I said, wow, thanks, that's amazing. I've actually heard a bitten. And then without any warning at all, one got up and flew straight across us, almost between us. And that was it. That was one of my earliest and best bird experiences on a reserve there. So we were, at one stage, an hour ago, we'd been checking out something which had been designed for the hunting of birds. And then an hour later, we were watching a beautiful and very rare bird flying right in front of us. We've got a few time teams coming up, 12 of them uh, on the Time Team Classics channel. Uh, the first Tudor Palace, Isha. I remember Isha. Yeah, amazing brickwork. Very small bricks <laughs> and very thick walls. <laughs> and just tell people quickly, why are Tudor bricks quite useful things and are different from Elizabethan bricks and why you need to keep your eye open for them? 
Um, if I recall, oh, uh, let's see. What did I learn about Tudor bricks 12 years ago? Uh, very small, very hard, uh, and they were essentially packed together almost to get almost so you they had almost as hard as stone really were they were those so they were so closely packed together i have no idea too <laughs> and um in the shadow of the tour bodmin moor was that wasn't the navy one then wasn't it no uh i don't think so that was the one where no, um, I remember. henry was coring yes lots of peat yes newts really bad weather bad weather wet feet the whole time yeah I can remember digging at Bodmin Moor there, and I, I can't even remember what feature it was. I think because we never didn't, we never actually found it. But we were essentially removing kind of almost formed peat. It was, wasn't it? And thick tussocky grass. That was a great thing about time. You, you, you never just went to a field and just took off grass. Half the time you were taking off like you know uh, hard course, hard, hard standing, or broken up concrete or peat. Or, uh, I don't know, it could be anything, really, wasn't it? Clay, remember scraping clay off World War II bombers, everything. And do you remember, um, one of the things we've been looking at, you know, we've been getting members of the team together, and it, and it's, it, you know, it's really exciting news that you're, you're going to be joining us. One of the things I always remember was the relief in having a really good uh, digger driver. Oh, and yeah. we were lucky to have Ian Barclay. And a lot of people, they they think, oh, you know, it's topsoil, and what are they doing taking a digger to the topsoil? What was your experience of that process, and why you feel it was sort of a good idea to have a brilliant digger driver like Ian, no longer with us, sadly, but to have someone like him as part of your team? Well, having even now in all uh, aspects of archaeological excavation that I do. If you've got a good digger driver, that's half the job is done already. And Ian was absolutely amazing. There is a very clear process of excavating a site and you have to start with the topsoil and you have to make sure that all your finds and everything come from a very clear layer. And Ian was brilliant at getting the topsoil off perfectly, turning it over. He could spot things from up in his machine. He was a better archaeologist than half the people down there by the end of it, really, by the time we'd finished. Uh, I'd also add he was brilliant at putting it back as well. Um, but uh, Ian could excavate a site from up in his cab pretty much on his own after a few years. He was so clued up. Um, it's also, I mean, the whole process, whether you're using a little trowel or a giant digger bucket, it's about seeing the changes and feeling the changes and it doesn't matter whether the trowel is in your arm or you're the digger driver with the controls at your hands. You can see it and you can feel it. And Ian was brilliant at seeing and feeling what was going on. And he could see what we could see as well. Whoever was with him digging, whether it's me or Phil, you were chatting the whole time. Can you feel that, Ian? Did you see that, Matt? Can you see how it's gone red there? I'm afraid I can't do that. Is there a big lump down there? I just heard your bucket clang. We were in constant communication, constantly working out what was going on. So it's like having an extra pair of eyes and a giant trowel on your arm, basically. It's fantastic. Um, okay, I'm going to put you in charge of something called Dig Camp. Okay. Dig Camp is we're going to invite various uh, trained archaeologists from oh, yeah. all over the country, some yeah. not so trained, some starting. Yeah. And I want you to imagine you have a fantasy dig camp and it's your yeah. job to sort out the diggers 
who are going to be great on time team. What right. essential skills are you looking for? If I'm asking you to put a crew together, what makes people good at digging on time team? Right. OK. Number one is hard work. No question about that at all. You've got to be on it as soon as you start and you don't stop until the very end of it there. No, uh, no waiting, no sitting down. Well, the occasional break, of course, can't work people too hard, but you've got to you've got to have that drive. Secondly, you have to be able to recognise the soil, as I was saying. You've really got to know when there's a big layer of something which can be taken off and when to hold back there and think, right, we're on the next layer now. Stop. What are we doing? What are we getting ourselves into? And thirdly, you do need detail because once you get down to it, it's those tiny, tiny little details which can make all the difference. Whether it's a tiny find in a layer you're taking off, a few more, I don't know, chalk flex in the next layer, something like that. You've got to be uh, constantly aware of how things are changing in front of you. And it's not just um, visual, as I said, how it feels, how it smells sometimes, how the water's running off it, all that kind of stuff. So it's a, a great range of skills from uh, mo- you know, moving a ton of soil in a couple of hours right down to, you know, carefully picking the sand off a skeleton. And um, we were lucky we had people like Henry Chapman and Steve Thompson. Um, What role are those guys playing while you guys are digging in terms of locating things and the work they're doing around the edges of the trench? Well, that's it. I mean, I was just part of a whole web, really, of of everyone who is all feeding information back and forth. If you can imagine, I don't know, it's a bit like a little internet or something. All these little people are like shooting out information across this net and then information is crossing this network everywhere and then coming back to different people. So I was guessing information from Henry about where stuff was and the height of stuff and whether I should be going down or quite often where I should be looking next. We were lining up where uh, a building was or the walls were or something like that. Um, the same similar information came from Stuart um, in, a, in a slightly more wider landscape level like that. Um, and then information from uh, Helen was very useful for me at the time for dating. Um, if I if, if, if I found different bits of pottery or something like that, she could very quickly kind of work out which stuff was earlier and later. And that all kind of fed into how I would be working and what I would choose to do next and that kind of thing. And of course, then uh, as soon as I stepped out, then Steve Thompson and Wessex would step in and essentially record what I had excavated. So I had to stop at a certain point where it could still be excavated before it, uh, sorry, I had to stop at a certain point where it could still be recorded before I'd excavated it all. So I had to make sure I didn't remove anything that then couldn't be sorted out or photographed. And then once I'd done that, or he'd done that, I'd go back. So yeah, it was a bit, it was a very complicated network sometimes. And it was sometimes it was difficult to remember who to tell what was going on, if that makes sense, (laughs) just to keep everyone in the loop. But yeah, great. And, uh, did you find the after you finished a day we would often sort of sit around in the pub and chatting? Did you find mm. the sort of I think of them as post match discussions yeah. going on in the pub were those useful experiences? They were indeed actually, and um because as I was usually in one or maybe two trenches in a day, I could hear what was going on in the other trenches, but I didn't really have a very good idea. Um, and it was good to sit around and chat to people like you and Henry and Helen, 
who'd actually been moving around all the trenches. Because sometimes I thought I was in the most exciting trench of the whole site. Then come six o'clock, you realise that you were probably fifth in line. <laughs> you know, People were kind of traipsing over to your trench just to be polite at the end of the day, really. And all the action was happening somewhere else. So it was really good to kind of, it was a bit of a leveller, really, to work out what was going on. And occasionally, you know, put your case forward and say, look, didn't didn't spend much time at my trench today, but tomorrow I really think, you know, it's going to kick off. So get down there, early doors. Yes, there's a certain amount of competition. I remember at Brancaster, or we, we were on a site with Helena Hammerow where we had an Anglo-Saxon hall, and there was also grub huts being dug. Wow. And the grub huts were, weren't very interesting, but the Anglo there was a certain competition to get into the Anglo-Saxon hall trench and not be wow. in the grub hut. So yeah. There was always there was always like some uh, there was always like yeah there was like a star trench I suppose wasn't there and you know I'm not going to beat around the bush quite often Phil started in what we thought was going to be the star trench but quite often it ended up to be another trench so you know there was a certain amount of luck in there sometimes I think um, you were around when we found one of the finds a lot of people remember is the gold coin yeah um, we found um, which came out of a load tons of black unpleasant material from a deep what do you remember about that i can remember that i think that's the biggest or certainly deepest archaeological trench i've ever seen and i can remember ian and kerry uh, th- th- i think they spent more time on the kind of health and safety structural aspects of that than, than any other trench we were ever in but it was huge um and the coin there as he said came from very close to the bottom didn't it It had gone right down it was a good what i don't know four or five meters deep i know and uh the guy who found it he hadn't been detecting long i don't think had he and anyway they, you could see a commotion whenever anyone found anything great on time team there, there was a little or anything exciting happened a little huddle would form um and so i i I'd turn on the radio and see if i could just pick up a bit a few tidbits of information but uh, even on that point, I remember, I think people were being a bit kind of restrained on the radio. So I thought I'd just wander over there. Uh, and this guy was holding this coin. And I can really clearly remember his hand was shaking. I think he had to hold his wrist with his other hand to stop it falling off. But it was very exciting. Really, really exciting because, you know, gold just it doesn't corrode. So it, can't, it comes out of the ground as shiny and new as it did in the day it went in there, which always looks exciting. Brilliant. Brilliant day. Um, time team in three words. Can you give me three words that, that for you sum up time team off the top Ex- of your head? Oh, exciting, exhausting, uh, 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 exhilarating. I don't know. <laughs> Brilliant. And your top time team dig, not necessarily one that you were. Um, you know not necessarily one that you remember from the early stages or later stage is there one time team dig you saw on telly or you were involved in that you thought crikey this is a good example of what we do um yeah in fact i'm gonna have to did we do i I always forget the name of it now was there one in i can't do you remember the roman processing site I always state that one. I can't remember what the site, what site it was. It Peter, Peter something. Well, uh, you can talk about it. And we'll find. I'll talk it. about it. Yeah, you can talking definitely. Talking to ex-members of Time Team is yeah. an alarming consequence to drinking summer lightning in pubs after <laughs> yeah. I have to say. Yeah, it's the, right, the Roman. Oh, I've got it. It's on the tip of my tongue. Uh, I think it was Peter. The Roman 
The Roman processing site was a great site and I really, really enjoyed it, even though it wasn't the most exciting site we did. We didn't have the best finds. We didn't have the best weather. It wasn't the most beautiful site, but something about it really appealed to me because it was just perfect. We had a, an amazing array of finds which told us what was going on on the site. We had, all, we had a great team down there who were really, really focused on what was going on. Um, I think we processing sites were not very well understood at that point. There was some real academic excitement about the site there. And I just remember feeling this is a brilliant project, this one here. It's a great, it's a great project. It's all come together. The finds, the, the, the location of the site, the map that we, we planned out how the whole site worked. It was just great. And I thought, it's not, I, don't, I haven't found a saint. I haven't found an inscribed stone. You know, we haven't broken any boundaries. But as a, as an, as a, as a kind of single entity of a programme, that was one of my favourites, I think. And of course, finally, Matt, you had a sort of secondary career in Time Team as our all-purpose man from the past. Yes. I'm, I'm remembering you in various gear. Um, uh, Anglo-Saxon dress was possibly the most alarming, but there was a rather nice moment where at the end of the programme, you and Phil traded Anglo-Saxon insults. Yes, I remember that. And I remember... Um... The uh, director at the time uh, didn't really give us any warning and just crept up to me and said, Matt, go over to there and tell Phil he's a... <laughs> and I was like, tell him that he can't dig. I was like, I've spent my... <laughs> I spent my time telling Phil, you know, asking him what to do. I can't really do that. So I kind of shuffled over to him and kind of said, Phil, I think I said your section isn't straight, which is basically pretty much the worst thing you could say to a field archaeologist, especially Phil. And he turned around, there was thunder in his eyes. And, I, and, I, and he said, you can't, and he said, you, you've got your thing over there. And then, uh, yeah, and it started from there, yeah, and we carried on, we carried on. <laughs> <laughs> and eventually it sort of morphed into Anglo-Saxon insults, which I... It did, uh, yes. We, we, had a, we had a kind of uh, a list of specific insults, which in Anglo-Saxon times, yeah, were, uh, were quite horrific. I think they were still pretty horrific then. I can't quite remember off the top of my head what they were. A lot of animals involved, if I recall, something like that. Well, Matt, it's been very nice talking to you. I'm, I'm really pleased uh, you're going to be joining us, and congratulations on establishing your partnership which sounds fantastic and I think what we'll do is ask you to have a look at some of these sites we're going to perhaps from an RSPP point of view um, and the sort of sort of wider thing so uh, it's been a great pleasure talking to you and uh, I look forward to seeing you on another time team site some point soon. Brilliant thanks Tim I can't wait. can't do any of this work without you so please subscribe back us on patreon and make sure that time team comes back again